0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Sigma Delta Talk. A big welcome to all of our listeners. I'm Margot Manley-Lima, National President for Sigma Delta Talk. Today's guest is Brenda Janowitz. Brenda is the author of six novels, including The Grace Kelly Dress. Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Washington Post, USA Today, and The New York Post, just to name a few. Brenda attended Cornell University, where she joined SDT. She also completed her law degree at Hofstra University. Brenda, welcome. We are so excited to have you for this episode of Sigma Delta Talk. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. My pleasure. So I just finished two days ago, your most recent novel, The Grace Mm -hmm. Kelly Dress, which came out this year. And I just have so many questions about it. (laughs) And I'm so (laughs) happy that I have this time with you. Um, But I want to make sure to share with our listeners that it is not my goal to spoil the story for anyone, because I really (laughs) want the readers to fully enjoy it for themselves. So Brenda, I'm hoping that you can provide us a synopsis of the book. So I don't Um, accidentally ruin it for others.
1: Right. I know it is so tricky. It's like you want to talk about the book, but you want people to be able to read it with fresh eyes. So what I like to say is the Grace Kelly dress is the story of three generations of women and the one wedding dress that binds them together. It's a story about mothers and daughters. It's a story about sisters and sisterhood. And ultimately, it's really about the true power of belonging.
0: I love that. I love all of those things, themes, (laughs) all of the themes totally resonate with me. Um, And so I'd like to talk about the dress and about how um, in the book, the dress is a family heirloom and how, you know, it's passed on um, and the women, you know, can make or change it to suit them. What was the inspiration for this book? I mean, was this your experience with your wedding dress or how did you come up with this idea?
1: Yeah, you know, I get asked that question a lot. So first, the first question is, did I have a dress like this? And unfortunately, I didn't. I did not have an heirloom. My mother's wedding dress was not preserved properly, so it wasn't even an option for me. But I will say it was a rainy day activity when I was little trying on her wedding dress. So that part definitely was part of my history. Uh, for me, you know, I was trying to write a book that would break out a little more that would appeal to a wider audience than my previous books had. And my agent sat me down and said, let's talk about the things you're obsessed with that everyone else is obsessed with. Because when you write a book, you stay with it for so long, it takes a year or two to write and then a year or two to publish and then a year or two to promote. I mean, you're really with this idea for a very long time. So we started talking about things I'm obsessed with. And, Anyone who knows me knows that I am obsessed with weddings and wedding dresses. (laughs) So that was like the obvious place to start. And my agent found this story from the Today Show about um, an heirloom wedding dress that had been passed down through 11 generations. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So she sent me this story and she said, do you think there's a book in here? And I said, absolutely. I was just immediately taken with this idea and I sort of took the weekend to think about it. And over the weekend, I thought, what would that look like? A dress passed down. Each woman gets to sort of make her mark on the dress and change it. And it would also reflect the time she was living in and the type of person she was. So over the weekend, I came up with the character of Rocky because I didn't want to come into this idea in the obvious place, which was if it was a person like me who'd be obsessed with an heirloom wedding dress and be dying to wear it. So I came up with Rocky. And... She's got this beautiful heirloom that she will be the third generation to wear it. But the only problem is she doesn't want to wear it herself. So that's that was sort of like my entry to the book. So the inspiration certainly came from the Today Show um, story about this dress passed down through 11 generations. But then in my hands, I sort of changed it a little and um you know, made it my own. Uh, But I will say, since we're talking all things SDT today, it came time to do my 1982 storyline, which is the story of Rocky's mother as she prepares to wear the dress. Uh, You know, I wanted to do a sister story. And on the first draft of that, uh, it was really just about Rocky's mom, Joan, who's called Joni in 1982, and her sister. But when I did a redraft, that was the only storyline that after the first draft, I ripped the entire thing out and I rewrote it because it just wasn't working. And I couldn't figure out what wasn't working about it. But when I started really thinking about who Joni was, that's when I realized, since I was working with a sister story, I wanted to do something close to my heart, which was the sisterhood of being in a sorority. And that's when the storyline really started to sing for me when I realized there was this dual meaning. So Joni would have sisters, she had her real life sister, but she had her sorority sisters. And that's sort of where that one went off. And the fun thing is now I get to do things like this, like connect with you and do the book club, which is gonna be great. And also connect with some of my own sorority sisters from back when I was in college. I know. I thought I couldn't love the book
0: anymore, and then I read Joni's story, and she's talking about you know going to chapter events with her sorority sisters, going to fraternity parties, and I'm like, yes, Brenda, like yes, um, I love that. But you know what? It's so interesting because I know that you went to college in the '90s, um, but this is set in the '80s, so it's like you know a decade plus prior. So. Did you do any research about what it was like to be in college? And I know you attended Cornell, um, but Joni goes to NYU. um, So it's a little bit of a different setting. So did you do any research to kind of provide an accurate description of what it would be like to be in a sorority fraternity in an urban campus?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I did so much research. It was crazy. A lot of times with books, I tend to set them more in the time period or the place where I am so that I can sort of skip all that research. (laughs) But um, for reasons I don't wanna reveal, 1982 was really an important year to set this timeline in. And so that was sort of non-negotiable, setting this in 1982 and even though And I guess since I grew up in the 80s, I thought it would be so easy because I know the 80s so well. But 1982 is a very different animal than the late 80s, which is really when I grew up. So I ended up having to do so much research from the littlest detail. Like at one point, I wanted Matthew to be wearing a swatch watch. And then I said to myself, oh, wait, were those invented in 1982? And I did my research. They were not. And, you know, the littlest detail like that can really take the reader out of the story. So for me, it was really important to try to be as true to 1982 as possible. So I had to research the time period. I researched sororities on urban campus. Uh, Obviously, the college I've used is like you know, a stand-in for NYU. I didn't want to actually use NYU because then people who had been there would be like, no, that's not right. And it was surprisingly hard to get a lot of information about NYU at that time. So I made up a fictional university, but, you know, I had to research New York City at that time, Long Island at that time, Uh, just so much research. (laughs) So much so that I say, you know, from now on, no other timelines, no other time periods, because the research I found was, while it was fun and interesting, it really slowed down the writing process, because I'm the sort of writer who does a lot of free writing and just wants to sort of get the words down, and when you're writing in a different time period, you can't, because certain sentences, like, like I mentioned, these little details, you have to constantly stop for the research, and, um, so that definitely was hard for my process that was tricky so um you know who knows maybe there will be a book set at sdd cornell in the 90s who knows because i actually i'm really into the 90s as well and i would love to do a 90s book um (laughs) but this one just for whatever you know when you're doing the book when i had rocky she had to be 30 in 2020 you know, you sort of do the math and you figure out when the other brides would have gotten married. And like I said, 1982, um, once you read it, you realize it's really important it be set in that exact year. So um, I was sort of stuck with 82, but it was fun because it was 82 was a little more like the late 70s. So it was like punk rock was a thing. And I wanted the music to be a part of that timeline. Um, So it was fun, but hard, you know, a little of everything. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Um,
0: so I was tickled when I read the section about um, when they did the ceremony in the sorority and uh, they passed the candle and then the woman who had just gone engaged blows it out. And you know, I think I thought back to my experience that happened once uh, in our chapter. I graduated mm-hmm. in early 2000, um, but I would feel like nowadays, most of our um, Collegiate women are not getting engaged at that time. So, that ceremony is, I feel like, doesn't happen today. Did that happen in your chapter while you were there?
1: You know, I don't remember that happening. And I'd have to, I'm on a text chain with my sorority sisters right now that (laughs) was blowing up last night. So, I'll have to ask them that. I don't remember ever experiencing it, but my best friend Sean and I were very into studying and we knew everything. (laughs) And one of our other best friends, Danielle, was the pledge. I guess trainer, it was called at that time. It wasn't called Pledge Master anymore. And our friend, Jen, was the president. So, I mean, we definitely knew our stuff. We were like very into all things, like the rules and whatever. So I feel like maybe I just read about that. Got but it. that ceremony always resonated with me. And now I can't wait for one of them to listen to this and call me and be like, of course we have that. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember it specifically happening. Um, But it was one of those things that I was sort of obsessed with and I don't know about your chapter room but we had all of the composites from all the other years and so that part I did take from my experience because I just remember feeling the sense of history and I loved looking at the older composites Um, and you know since we were the alpha chapter we went back so far and if you went into like storage you could seriously find like a lot of really old composites and there's just something about that history and you know certainly for the storyline Joni has a really intimate moment with one of the composites Um, so I sort of like saw that one in my mind's eye but I will confess when I was drafting that scene I was definitely thinking of the Cornell chapter (laughs) I definitely had that in mind sort of the, the space we used to stand in with the composites behind us. So that's like partly fictional and partly um, my experience.
0: So tell me, I'm curious, I want to hear more about your experience at Cornell and what, why you joined SDT and, and what you made of your experience and what you think about it now, you know, when you reflect upon it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I'm, I'm actually working on a proposal about a book about these decisions that we made and for a long time I wasn't even going to Cornell I had told Michigan I was going there I'd put my money in but then I got off the wait list to Cornell at the very last second and sort of everything changed so when I went to Cornell we had a close family friend who oh wait I should back up when I visited Cornell when I was a senior in high school we had a close family friend Pearl Chisner and she was an SDT sister so when she showed us around Cornell you know, I became completely obsessed with not only Cornell, but SDT. And so I remember when I got there as a freshman, she had already graduated, but you know, she was sort of a living legend in SDT. All of the seniors were sort of still obsessed with Pearl and they said, oh, we were told to take good care of you. So I remember during Rush, I sort of felt Pearl's presence even though she'd already graduated and I saw her friends who I'd met the year before. And I just, when I walked into the house, you know, the SDT house at Cornell is, um, it's an actual house. It's not like in the dorms or anything. I know different chapters have different setups, but we had this beautiful house Um, And when you walk in, you just felt this warmth. It just felt like home when you walked in. and you know, during rush at Cornell, first of all, it's freezing cold because you do it at the beginning of second semester, and Ithaca's freezing colds in January. So you sort of go from house to house, and every house has a different vibe, and which is not to say the other vibes are bad or whatever. But when I walked into S.D.T., it was it was like you could take a deep breath. I just sort of like knew this was the right place for me. So it was sort of a foregone conclusion that I was going to pledge S.D.T. because. I sort of went to Cornell with that image in mind. And then when I rushed, I felt such a great connection to it. And now um, my closest friends uh, are my STT sisters. So when I look back, I look back really fondly. Um, it's, you know, it's complicated because it was so long ago. <laughs> so sometimes I feel very far apart from it. My last college reunion was five years ago, and we got to go to the STT house. And you sort of walk in and feel like nothing's changed. And, um, there's something so like wonderful and comforting about that, you know? Um, so it was great visiting the house. Of course, things have changed. College students have changed. The sorority system has changed. But for us, you know, it's sort of this like best ET forever feeling, you know?
0: <laughs> and I know what you mean about the vibe of the house, because I, I've been, I've had the opportunity to visit Alpha oh, chapter um, really? several times. And actually, my, oh my My most recent one was during our centennial in 2017 um, when we went um, for the weekend. And um, for, I I don't know, it it was interesting because I don't know if the collegiate women could totally appreciate like our centennial celebration at our Alpha chapter, I think, you know, they probably maybe took it for granted, whereas people have been around, like, you know, so amazing. And then we had our centennial celebration in New York City, and we had an SDT museum. And so we had old composites, we had a timeline, we had all these artifacts. So when you talk about heirlooms and special things that have been passed yeah. down, like it, it took your breath away to see all of those things. Um, yeah. And super neat. And, you know, there was a note that Eleanor Roosevelt wrote our national headquarters uh, thanking us for our participation I cannot think for what but it was just like I was like oh my goodness like yeah where, where do we have these things and you know when I go to when I visit our national headquarters in Indy in Carmel um I feel the same way because we have composites from different chapters from different generations um you know we have like a a a picture of brother Nat and the first SDT And, um, you know, it's just like wonderful that we have all of these things. So it is such a treat to go there and kind of like live in the past, so to speak, you know, and um, it's
1: wonderful. It is, you know, uh, we were supposed to have our college reunion uh, this past summer, but because of COVID, it got canceled. And I was so looking forward to going back to Cornell and going back to the SDT house. And um, I really miss that. I, I think we're supposed to go this, you know, so this upcoming June, we'll just crash uh, the reunion of the people who are one year ahead of us. Why, <laughs> which not? Okay Why not? Yeah, yeah. But now I'm like wondering if we'll even make our way. But, you know, just some of the memories, when you walk into that house, I can remember what the stairs sound like when you come up and down, <laughs> you know, living in the house. Uh, was such an important experience to my college, to my, you know, overall college experience. And there are so many things I remember about it. And being back in the physical house just sort of brings everything back. Uh, you You almost like feel the way you used to feel when you were there.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, I attended the University of Miami. We don't have a house, but we have a chapter suite with the other sororities. And um, so it's kind of like a big chapter room with composites (laughs) and a kitchen, you know, like a hangout area. Um, But I do, when I do go back and I go and I walk into the suite, it it is like a a time warp feeling. It's like, (laughs) oh my goodness, you know, where am I? Um, I know know I'm home and I know this is familiar, but like there's a newness and an oldness and it's kind of like, hard to
1: describe. Yeah. It's very surreal. It's very surreal to have your foot in both places at the same time. Yeah. I agree.
0: So I was, um, in the book there's a lot of talk about the dress and how it was constructed and the material that was used. And to be honest, I don't I don't know if I could have pictured the Grace Kelly dress if it there wasn't an image on the cover of the book. Mm-hmm. And I had to google it and of course that led me down mm-hmm. the rabbit hole of like princess dresses, you know, yeah. with Diana and Hey oh, like are you into all of the princess dresses or are you like really do you really favor the Grace Kelly dress as the ultimate wedding dress?
1: Oh, goodness. So yes and yes. So I am obsessed with all princess wedding dresses. I mean, I'm obsessed with all wedding dresses. That's really the truth. But certainly... I'm very obsessed with Kate's, I'm obsessed with what Beatrice just wore, Um, but to me, Grace Kelly's is the ultimate wedding gown. So when I was first writing the draft of the book, once I decided I was taking this inspiration and writing a book about a wedding dress, uh, I was sort of describing Grace Kelly's dress because it's the ultimate dress and it actually influenced my own wedding dress. I know everyone can't see this picture, but I'll show you a picture. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I had a delicate ribbon around my waist, which was like a nod to Grace's cummerbund. Uh, I had lace on the bodice, just like Grace. I mean, I remember when I was shopping for my own wedding dress, there were so many references to Grace Kelly's dress that I was sort of looking for. Um, So when I started writing the book, I was describing the dress, but I was really describing Grace Kelly's dress. And the original title for the book was Rose Point Lace, which is one of the laces that was used. And my agent said, you know, I think we need a better title for this. I said, Oh, let's do the Grace Kelly dress. And she said, I love the title, but why? (laughs) 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 I said, Can't you see I'm describing Grace Kelly's wedding dress? And she was like, No. So that was interesting because at that point, that's when I said, Oh, I need to lean into this more. I'm going to call it the Grace Kelly dress. And it will actually be a replica of the gown that Grace Kelly, you know, sometimes you just need to like lean into stuff more. And so I leaned into that idea and then it was just Grace Kelly all the way, (laughs) the dress I was talking about. And then that was like the fun research because obviously I had to research, you know, how to sort of like make the dress (laughs) and different details about her dress. Even though I was obsessed with her dress, I didn't know um, what type of lace was used, what the construction was like. I didn't know any of that. So that was sort of fun to research and figure out. And there were all these little great secrets about it um, that I learned. And so that was like the fun part of research. But that, again, was a ton of research. <laughs> I found as I was describing stuff, I was like, oh, no, I don't know anything about what I'm talking about. <laughs> now, did you have to go to Paris to do some of this research? That sounds amazing, and I wish I did. (laughs) Someone asked me if I went to Paris to research it, and I said, well, Paris is in 1958, so I guess if there were a time machine, I would willingly go to Paris in 1958 just to check things out. So the Paris I've I've sort of described here is through... a lot of research, a lot of just imagination. And it's a combination of the research from Paris in 1958, the Paris that I knew as a student traveling, um, just lots of details like that. Um, but again, you have to research every detail. And if you're describing something, it's like, was that there in 1958? <laughs> like at one point, I remember I was researching and I was like, wait, were there cars in 1958? My, my friend was like, you've gotten too far into the research. Of course there were cars in 1958. But like I was doing like every detail. like anything I said, I was like, oh my God, I have to research this. Right, fact check it. (laughs) I got very overwhelmed by research and my friend was like, you need to relax. (laughs) I think you know what 1958 was like, chillax, but you you get like very wrapped up in it and overwhelmed. Oh, and I'll say a little of the research definitely came from watching old movies and specifically Grace Kelly movies because I think that gives you such a great sense of how people spoke and the cadence of speech and sort of what people were talking about. Um, So I did all of that. But I I do wish I could have gone to Paris. But having small children at home, you can't just like jet off to Paris. Um, But yes, how I I, wish that (laughs) were my lifestyle. (laughs) So um,
0: in the beginning, you mentioned that one of the core themes of the book is belonging. I'm hoping you can share with us a little bit more about how you see this concept of belonging woven into the story.
1: Absolutely. You know, when I decided that I was going to write about three different generations, the dress going through three different generations, the question always sort of came up, who does the dress truly belong to? And it made me think about um, heirloom items that are passed down and how you sort of put your own mark on it and how the person above you sort of feels about it. Um, I have a lot of my grandma Dorothy's jewelry. In fact, I'm wearing two of her rings today. Oh my goodness, they're beautiful. Thank you. And uh, I wear them a lot and I always feel her presence with me when I wear them. Um, But one of the other rings that I'm actually not wearing today, but one of her other rings when, uh, I guess it was One or two Valentine's days ago, my husband said, oh, let's get all of Grandma Dorothy's rings sized for you so you could wear them more frequently because I was wearing one that wasn't my size that would leave an imprint on my finger every time I wore it. (laughs) So it was my husband's idea, let's get them all resized. But she had this one ring with garnets that I loved, but I decided I wanted to size it for my pointer finger. And my mother said, no, 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 that's not where that ring belongs. It's for the (laughs) ring finger. So the question became, you know, But it was Grandma Dorothy's ring, then you gave it to me. So, who does it really belong to? Like, am I allowed to make this change? And then ultimately, you know, I made the change because I wanted to be able to wear it all the time. For me, heirlooms should be enjoyed and worn and, you know, not just sort of like kept on a shelf somewhere. So, it sort of brought up this interesting thing who does it belong to? And that sort of came into the book. Each woman would get the dress. How would they change it? Who did it belong to? Is it their right to change it? Uh, and certainly with Rocky, she, she does not want to wear it. And it's her mother who suggests that maybe there's a way she could wear it if only she would change it. But Rocky doesn't feel like she can because she doesn't feel any ownership over it. So this idea of belonging um, was always sort of baked into the concept of the book. When I realized I wanted the dress to go through three generations, Uh, I was always sort of thinking of this idea of belonging and how do we take care of these items that belong to someone else and how do we honor them? And for me, wearing it and enjoying it and loving it is the way to honor them. But I'm sure other people would disagree with me. (laughs) But for me, you know, I love wearing this stuff. I think it really, it makes me feel like my grandmother's with me sometimes if i have an important meeting i'll wear three of her rings at once you know there there's just something about these objects they're so meaningful but you do have to make them your own i think
0: <laughs> no i agree and um I have a couple pieces from my grandmother as well i i have her mink stole that (gasps) has her initials on the inside um now i would never buy a mink stole today i know i know that's probably a faux pas to wear you know mink but nonetheless i have it and anytime i have like a fancy occasion or you know and it's cold you know i will put it on and i will wear it and i always get comments because it looks old, you know, in in the best way possible. And it makes me feel close to her. And I I just feel like special wearing Mm, Um, that. So yeah. So I love the fact that there's heirlooms that you can share. And and I hope that there are things for you know, I have two daughters. So I hope Uh they take my stuff and they they care about it. I sold my wedding dress. I don't have it anymore, but I did keep my veil. And I'm hoping like I thought to myself, that seems like something that we you can easily pass on, store yeah. and and people, you know, it's it's not so stylistic that maybe it doesn't match, you know, different brides right. along the way. So yeah. my sister has worn my veil and I have another younger sister. She is more than welcome to wear it. And hopefully my daughters would like to wear it. Um, but I don't have a dress, but I do have a veil. So I'm, I'm hoping that's the piece um, of the wedding that passes on. And um, yeah, yeah, I, I, love I it. what's that?
1: I love that. That's, oh, that's so wonderful. And I love that one sister has already worn it. That's amazing.
0: I know it, it is pretty special.
1: Something I was struck by was Rose's
0: story and how her notion of family is not a traditional one. For her, we see that her friends become her family. Can we unpack this idea? Because I think that this is a powerful concept, one that I've personally thought a lot about,
1: especially as it relates to sorority sisters. So, you know... Certainly with the sorority and as you get older, you do realize that there are certain friends who are in your life for keeps and you're going to be friends with these people no matter what. I think the thing for me with family is it's like a no matter what relationship, like no matter what happens, no matter what you go through, they're your family. You can't get rid of them for better or for worse. But I do think there's a way for friends to become like that. And since Rose, you know, one of the main things in her storyline was her loneliness. She's our orphan and she sort of dreams of these wedding dresses. She's she's making wedding dresses for these women who are in love and she wants love so badly. Um, So it was important to me to sort of explore this family relationship in all different ways. And so Rose's timeline, like you said, is the friends who become family. And sometimes we don't even realize that they're going to have such a big role in our lives. It's only, you know, all of a sudden you turn around and the years have gone by and you realize what these people mean to you. Uh, But like I said, some of my best friends in the world are from my experience at SDT at Cornell. Uh, And I treasure those relationships. And those are the sort of relationships my husband always says, those are your real friends. Those are, those are the people who've known you since you were 18. Those are the real friends, but there is something about that, about the person who knows your good parts, your bad parts, and sort of loves you no matter what, and loves you at every stage of your life. You know, it's easy for someone to love you when you're up high and sort of doing well and positive and cheery, but the people who are there with you in your lowest moments, and you know, those are the ones who sort of Are the friends who are like family so that was a bit you know so i definitely drew from personal experience and that's definitely something i feel in my heart uh that some of my friends are more like family uh you know and especially as you get older you see um the preciousness of those friendships how important they are
0: definitely and also how they not only how those friendships endure time but also space like it's very easy Mm -hmm. to be tight with people when you live together you're you're them in the college experience but then everybody moves their own way starts their own careers their own families and time and distance could be a burden on a friendship that's not strong and solid and like family
1: oh my goodness i love that that's so great you know as i mentioned before my friend sean i can text with her or call her and just like Start in the middle of a sentence as if we'd been in the middle of a conversation, and like that's perfectly fine. (laughs) And there are certain friends like that, friends who have known you since forever, that you can do that with. I love that idea space, that's beautiful. Yeah, because right as you as your career becomes more important, and physically you're living in different places, and especially now with COVID, we can't even see each other. Uh, yeah, that's wonderful, that's great, that's so true. Um, so I read in
0: your bio that you started off your professional career practicing law and then you pivoted to writing. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you made that change and what prompted it.
1: Yeah, you know, I became a lawyer because I loved to read and I loved to write. That was always my thing. So I felt like, you know, I like to joke when you're like a Jewish girl from Long Island, you can't be like, and hey, I'm going to go write books. My parents were like, you need a career you always need to be able to rely on yourself. You need to make your own money. So I became a lawyer. And I loved law school because, again, love reading, love to write. But I was one of those unhappy lawyers walking throughout my law firm. And I had this idea. I wanted to write a book. And so for my 30th birthday, Sean, who I've mentioned 700 times, got all of my friends together and chipped in to send me to a writing class.
0: Oh, my gosh. And-
1: Yeah. And she said, okay, no more talking about writing. Now you're actually going to do it. So she sent me to this writing class that I wanted to take. And every Tuesday night was dedicated to writing. No matter what was going on with work, I made sure I was at this class and they would give you assignments. I made sure I did the assignments. And that's when I started sort of taking my writing more seriously. I think it's hard, especially when you have a profession and something you know, where you're making money every week. And it's hard to be like, I'm going to go chase this dream. And, you know, before you sell your first book, the whole thing has to be written and you don't know if it will sell or not. So you're spending a year or two of your time on a hobby, a lark, whatever you want to call it. And you don't know if it's going to go anywhere. So I would sort of do this in my free time. You know, I was living in Manhattan at the time. If I was meeting a friend for dinner and she was late, I would take out my notebook and write. If, you know, it was a rainy day and I wasn't going out, I would take out my notebook and write. So um, I started getting more into my writing. And then a funny thing happened to me, which was that I was invited to my ex-boyfriend's wedding. And I was like, this is too hilarious not to write. So that sort of became the idea for my first book. And at the time, I said, oh, you know what? I'm just going to write it as a great exercise. And I used to send it to my sorority sisters chapter by chapter, just like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And they were like, oh, it's so funny. This is cute. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to finish this. So I finished the novel. But then, you know, being the type A person that I am, I was like, oh, I should get this published now. (laughs) And so I went and found an agent. I like to joke if I knew how hard it was and I knew how Hard publishing was, I probably would still be writing books and just sending it chapter by chapter to friends. And I didn't know any better. So I was just like, oh, just get an agent. So I did. And then I got my first book deal. And it, my first novel was about going to my ex-boyfriend's wedding. And so it just sort of went through there, went from there. But that was sort of how I made the transition because it is hard. uh, It's not that steady paycheck and you don't know if the book is going to be published. So it's a lot of work for like a hope and a prayer, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. But eventually I made my way here.
0: (laughs) But I imagine you don't look back now. It's not as if you're like, oh, I wish I was practicing law at this firm. Like you are, you are in your sweet spot right now.
1: Absolutely, and I love that I have the sort of job that I could do on my time. Um, You know, we were talking before we started about having kids, you know, I do a lot of my work when the kids are at school, but even sometimes if they have, like last night, they were sort of like quietly playing video games by themselves in the playroom. You know, you have an hour to yourself and I have something I can be doing as opposed to like playing on my phone, which would be my other default. (laughs) So it is something that you can fit into the spaces Um, really nicely, whereas a career in law is a little harder. You have meetings, you have clients, you have appearances, like you can't can't sort of fit it in. So I don't look back in that respect, but I do often wonder if I hadn't done the big firm thing, if I could have found my niche in law, because I do have some friends who are still very happy lawyers, uh, I do wonder about that because a writing career doesn't have the stability that a legal career has. So sometimes I think about that, but in general, I'm so happy I sort of pursued the thing I most wanted to do, right? A, a friend was telling me, she said, you know, I wanted to do, she wanted to run a marathon before she turned 50. And I was like, oh God, I don't have a goal like that. Like I should set a goal, something I want to do before I turn 50. And she's like, oh, why don't you write a book? <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, great. Done. Did it. <laughs>
0: But I love, I love the part of your story that it was your sorority sisters who nudged you, right? Like those are true friends who are like, you're not going to settle for status quo here. You, I know you want this and we're going to help you get there.
1: Absolutely.
0: So you mentioned your next book or your next project about decisions are,
1: can you share a little bit more about maybe what's next to come? Well, so that's just something I'm working on that I haven't um, sold just yet, but I'm on a two book deal with HarperCollins for two more books that are sort of in the Grace Kelly dress family. So I'd love to tell you about those. Yes, please. So the next book is called The Liz Taylor Ring. Mm -hmm. And like I did with the Grace Kelly dress, I had an heirloom item in three generations. In this book, it's an heirloom item, the ring. And instead of being passed down through three generations, there's three siblings and they're sort of fighting over it. Oh, so it's like a little different, but also in the background, we get to see the parents' love story. So we get to see this ring, sort of the meaning and what it means for their family and for the parents. Uh, and this is so hilarious. I'm sitting at my desk, so I just have to show you. <laughs> my mom bought me this replica of Liz Taylor's ring. Oh my is goodness. That is... Something. It's so funny. My mom, uh, and I leave it on my desk as sort of like inspiration because the book is about this ring. And we were like joking wouldn't it be funny if I had like a workman come into the house and someone's like, she left this humongous diamond sitting on the <laughs> desk. But it's this like fun replica she got. And you know, sometimes as a writer, you need these like talismans to sort of like keep going forward. Um, so that's my personal Liz Taylor. <laughs> And I know when that book comes out, people are going to be like, do you have a tremendous diamond? And I'll be like, no, but I do have this fake one.
0: <laughs> well, you know, my next Google search is going to be going down a rabbit hole of like celebrity engagement rings because now like, oh, I need to do
1: that. <laughs> it is so much fun. So the ring that this book is going to be based on is the Krupp diamond, which Elizabeth Taylor Um, which Richard Burton bought for Elizabeth Taylor. She had two massive diamonds in her life. uh, So I had to decide which one to use. So I decided to go with the crop, but she had so many famous pieces of jewelry. Uh, And then in terms of the engagement rings, it's kind of interesting because as I was pitching that, I was finishing up the Grace Kelly dress and Grace Kelly has a fun engagement ring story. When the prince proposed to her, he proposed with um, a diamond solitaire and it was diamonds and rubies every other. And it was sort of a nod to Monaco and it was like a beautiful understated piece. excuse me, so she wore that as her engagement ring, but then he came to visit her in Hollywood and he saw all the starlets, including Liz Taylor, of course, and they had these like massive diamonds. And so he immediately went to Cartier and was like, she needs a massive diamond. So he then got her a second engagement ring and Grace Kelly wore that. The, The ring she's wearing in high society is her real engagement ring from the prince. And it's stunning. Another one you should check out. Jackie O had a really interesting engagement ring.
0: Oh, so yeah. check it out. I'm gonna. Yeah. Check you, check you can it. go down a rabbit <laughs>
1: hole. Yeah, for days looking at engagement rings. It's just too much fun. Too much fun.
0: Well, I look forward to that. Um, I'm curious. I know you said that you read and you write a lot. So I, I love to read as well. What? Who are some of your favorite authors? And what are you currently reading?
1: Oh my God, I have so many authors, too many to name. I actually have a tab on my website with my favorite authors because when when asked to say which are my favorites, I forget. But next up, I'm going to read Ellen Hildebrand's um, Troubles in Paradise. It's the third book in her Paradise series, and I need to know how it ends. <laughs> she left me hanging last year. So I'm really excited about that. Ellen Hildebrand is always great for just fun escapism. They're these like great stories. And I think the secret about Ellen that no one talks about, she also has these amazing descriptions of food. And I don't know why no one talks about that. No one ever says more, but sometimes like I'll read her book and yes, the romance is great. The setting is great, but I'm like, I really need to try that recipe (laughs) because I love the way she describes food.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's a girl after my own heart.
1: (laughs) Oh, wait, and speaking of which, I have this young adult novel called Love and Olives, and it's by Jenna Evans Welch. So that's next on my list as well. But, you know, I like to read a little, and that's young adult, I should mention. So I don't always just read women's fiction. I love memoir. I love, I love to read across like all different genres, because I think that also helps you to be a better writer, to just sort of see what's out there, see lots of different things. Um, And it also makes you a more interesting human, right? To like have all these different perspectives. So I try to read a little of everything. Right now I'm reading this memoir called Drinking a Love Story. And it's about Caroline Knapp. And it's like fascinating about her alcohol addiction. So I like, you know, I like to read, I I, I like for it to run the gamut. Sometimes I get into like a thing where I'm only reading young adult or I'm only reading memoir, but I try to mix it up a little. Awesome.
0: Well, during... COVID times, um, SDT has started an alumna book club um, Mm -hmm. as a means to engage with our alumni during these challenging times. So if our listeners would like to join us at the end of October, we will be meeting to discuss the Grace Kelly dress and Brenda will be joining us. So so if I miss any questions, um, (laughs) our alumni will have an opportunity to ask them Um, to Brenda herself. So uh, I definitely encourage our listeners, uh, if they're interested, certainly to buy the book and read it. And then if they can join us at the end of October for a virtual book club.
1: I cannot wait. We're going to have so much fun.
0: Uh, Yes, I cannot wait either. Brenda, (laughs) I'm so thankful that you joined us today. This has been such a treat to talk to you, to learn more about the book, your SDT experience, and all the wonderful things that you're doing.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great.
0: If you want to learn more about Brenda, please check the show notes for ways to follow her. Thank you for joining me for this episode. My name is Margot Manley Lima, and you've been listening to Sigma Delta Talk.